Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last night's tragedy in Dallas, where five police officers were shot and killed and seven others wounded, marks the end of a sad week in this country. WITF and NPR will have coverage throughout the day. We will have a special Smart Talk on Monday devoted to the events of this week. First, I'm joined on the phone by Tom Gross, who is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Chiefs of Police Association. Chief Gross, welcome to the program. Chief, are you there? I am here. Okay, there you are. Okay. Just wanted to spend a few minutes with you before we uh, get into our regularly scheduled uh, program today. Uh, After the events of last night, and it may be too soon to tell, but maybe you can give me a general idea. What do police officers have to do to protect themselves? Well, uh, to start with, again, it's a shock that uh, this would happen. It is something in our profession that we know and expect, but anytime these uh, tragedies occur, we stop and remember those officers. As far as safety, there is no limit to the amount of uh, training and equipment and um, those sorts of things that we can do, but even more importantly, just this ability to be uh, in and participate with the community. Let me ask you this, as a fellow police officer, even though it was thousands of miles away, what are the thinking of uh, police officers across this country this morning? Well, of course, it's the first topic of conversation. It's the first thing that we do that we know that we're going to, again, uh, put our flags at half-mast and that we're going to ask ourselves questions, which we have done this week in light of the uh, the earlier shootings. And again, we know that there's this heightened sense of uh, concern that uh, is justified, but is also uh, important to recognize what the facts are in many of these situations. Well, let's talk about the shootings earlier in the week, because it's not just uh, the, let's call it what it is, the assassination of these police officers last night, but also the two shootings uh, in Minnesota and also in Louisiana earlier in the week. What conversations are occurring amongst police officers and police departments across this country and across the state as a result of those? Well, we uh, here at our headquarters, which uh, represents the police chiefs around the state, uh, we first thing again had conversations about what is happening, how, what can we do to uh, to reduce the number of shootings that are questionable. Again, we don't know the facts in either of these cases that occurred this week, and while we uh, conclude uh, that they. Um, may have been awful and tragic we really don't know the facts and one of the things that's important we also i think try to be calm in our analysis uh here and uh uh do have some concern about how heated the rhetoric gets uh in a hurry i i think though it would be human nature and that this would be something that uh anyone doing their job as a police officer would think about when they are going out on the streets this week, they have to be thinking that they have to have a heightened sense of, I have to be careful out here, not just not for their own safety, but situations where there's a confrontation where it may escalate. There, uh, there is a heightened sense with the police officers, and even what I hear is uh, family members, that uh, ever since uh, probably this new focus 
a new new uh, raised uh, questioning in 2014 after Ferguson. Uh, family members and police officers do uh, have a, an additional concern about is is my husband or my wife uh, going to be harmed or killed? But again, and I'm but I I also wanted to refer to I'm referring to what the police officers themselves are thinking about uh, when they are coming into a, a situation where there's a confrontation with a suspect, not only about their own safety, about thinking about using their weapon. Well, yes, I mean these these are situations that are uh, occurring in milliseconds that require a lot of analysis and decision making. And now, if there are additional factors that are coming in that maybe should not come into play as to how am I going to be portrayed, am I going to create a community crisis, these, these are decisions that really cannot be made in the, in the milliseconds uh, where an officer is in a deadly force situation. Tom Gross is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Chiefs of Police Association. Chief, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And let me just tell you again, if you're just tuning in, that uh, on Monday we will have a special Smart Talk uh, focusing on the events of uh, this week, not just the events themselves, but what led to those events. And uh, hope to have a a nice discussion coming up on uh, Monday about that. So uh, be sure to tune in at that time. Uh, Again, I will remind you that NPR will have coverage throughout the day uh, here on WITF of the Dallas police shootings. And you can't talk about that without talking about the shootings earlier in the week as well. Now, for this portion of the program, we're joined by someone who uh, unfortunately uh, is uh, much too familiar with death. Uh, Dauphin County Coroner Graham Hetrick, and uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank uh, you. It's good to be here. We, uh, our plan is to talk about the TV show that uh, you'll be starring in. Can I say starring? I'm I'm the feature. Okay, <laughs> I'll say starring. You say feature. Uh, the coroner, I speak for the dead. It will be on. It's an eight-part investigation discovery miniseries starting on uh, Monday, and Graham Hetrick will be featured. His cases, uh, some of the forensics that you used in those cases. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes, but. You and I talked a little bit about the events of last night, the events of uh, last week. You deal with death every day. Uh, I have to say that there are probably, I don't think I'm you know, stretching it too far by saying that there are many, many people in this country this morning, this week, in a lot of pain, wondering where we are going as a country. Someone who sees death, who sees violent death on a regular basis. What are your thoughts about this? My thoughts are that this country's in pain. The actual title of this show is Coroner, I Speak for the Dead. It always has been my premise, and I talked to you, I think, four years yeah. ago on this. Yeah. Um, it's been my premise that if we study how people die, we can understand how we're living. And it's important data. And many people have asked, well, why would you do this show for Discovery ID? And four years ago I said I think we should try to rent the forum or something and as a community come together and talk about these issues and these issues emanate from data and the data is how do these people die how did those policemen die last last night in Dallas 
how do the people within this series, how did they die and what can it tell us? Sometimes it tells us about bad, re, bad and toxic relationships and how you have to be careful. Sometimes it tells you that when you try to change your life, uh, maybe to the better, sometimes um, that elicits violence and you have to be aware of that. It tells you about how capricious death is. Every one of those policemen the other night thought they were going to go home to their wife and kids. And that's not going to happen. And so <clears throat> death tells us so much about how we live. And I think as a country, we have to start looking beyond the noise, the rhetoric, the, uh, the hateful speech, and realize we're sitting on this continent together. We have to have a common response to some bad behavior. And we have to have a concept of agreed rules so that we can live in this society. Martin Luther King would have never gotten on top of a parking garage and triangulated assassinated police. I've read him extensively, extensively, and I think it's, it's really important that we get back to the concepts of Dr. King. The first contact, con, concept of King was we can make this transition. We can get justice, but we have to do it peacefully because hate only breeds hate, and love can breed positive change. And I think that's where we're at right now. The reason I did the Discovery Show was to show the teamwork, really. Number one, it's the only show that will be on ID Discovery presently that is medical legal death investigation. And it sort of says, what does a coroner do anyways? Because people don't really understand that. And it talks about scientific thinking, deductive and inductive reasoning, uh, testing hypotheses, but there's a greater story there, and it is teamwork. In each one of these cases, you're going to see how hard are public safety individuals, not just the police, but every day the threat of this society is held together by police, firemen, EMS, hazmat, so many people involved on, on the lines to keep an orderly society here. I remember once I was driving home with my wife and there was a case going on and I turned on my police radio, portable police radio. She said, wow, you, this is really a busy day because she had never listened to it before. I said, honey, it's a slow day. <laughs> so as we go about our business, as, as we shop at the store and bring the kids home from school and it's all functioning relatively well for us, we don't realize that there's thousands of people out there doing things that they would not normally do, as to rush into a fire, uh, to go into a precarious situation to give medical aid, to be a law enforcement officer and try to serve and protect. Mm -hmm. So I think if anything today, what we should do is just Take a really deep breath and say, let's try to make something positive out of this. Let's 
start reflecting on how we have to care for each other. We have to respect law enforcement. Truth of the matter is <clears throat> that there are over 50,000 attacks on law enforcement every year. 50,000. That's a data. That's not something I came up with. And uh, we don't hear about that. So I don't envy their job. And many times I don't envy my own because of the hostility of debates, because they, I might come out with something that someone doesn't want to hear. Has that happened before? Yes. And like what? I mean, in, in what way? <clears throat> That uh, something is that you've uh, determined or uh, that you concluded. Well, that... I might determine that the uh, the person was exceedingly high on drugs and maybe going into a cocaine hysteria or something. Someone like doesn't that. hear that, and someone doesn't hear it. But I'm sitting in front of a toxicology report, you know, and I have to speak for the dead truthfully because they have their story to tell, and. I, I can understand that, but um, we ultimately have to say, what are the facts? What are the facts? If they, and, and I, I truthfully believe that most police force, I, I, man, I think Dauphin County has some of the finest police I have ever met, you know. And <clears throat> they, I have never, and I was, I was in 385th military police, I was trained in and associated with 52nd CID, uh, I invested all, investigated all kinds of cases, and uh, I cannot believe that the vast majority of police today go out there, strap on that gun and taser and the pepper spray, and they go out and say, boy, today I want to shoot or pepper spray or brutalize somebody. I just don't see that. And that's my data. And I'm one who has investigated police shootings multiple times. And I go by the data each time. Um, and sometimes it's against the police and sometimes it's in favor of what the, the police commentary was. I want to talk about the, the show itself a little bit more in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing forensics. We will be in just a few minutes. And the new TV show, The Coroner, I Speak for the Dead with Dauphin County Coroner Graham Hetrick. And I want to make sure that I point out that I said that uh, the show will premiere on uh, Discovery, uh, Investigation Discovery on uh, Monday. It is Monday, July 18th, so it is a week from this Monday. But uh, there is a premiere, right, that is open to the public? Yes, it's uh, going to be at Springgate Winery, which is in Lower Paxton Township. Been there many times. Yep, and uh, it's it's just my way of uh, of recognizing the cor courageous people that were involved in many of these episodes, mm -hmm. and um, I, I'm I'm so proud of many of the people because I what I want to do with uh, and Discovery's just been wonderful in allowing me to do this, is to promote the understanding of forensic sciences, number one, and medical legal death investigation. But number two, to, as I said, we speak, the dead speak. And when they speak, we should listen. 
and we should have conversations about what they're telling us. Before we get into some of the specific cases that uh, you'll be examining, um, we had a conversation beforehand, and I kind of like uh, you to talk about that a little bit, where you just talked about the forensic sciences, Mm -hmm. and you also used the word data a little bit earlier. You said to me that we don't use data, we as a society don't use data, we don't use science as much as what we should. Uh, but you said that there's a sign up even in your uh, examination room. Talk about all of those things. Well, the, the sign says first rule out homicide. So when we roll, every case is assumed first to be this highest threshold, and that is homicide. So we test that theory, and this is what science should do. Uh, without emotion, it should look at the data and start testing the theory. If homicide falls away, and it could be possibly accidental or suicide, or in some cases even a natural death, we have to test each one of those theories. And then the one that stands all the tests of the data, that's most probably the truth. But you go in with a theory in mind, or maybe the theory comes later. How do you yeah, go into the hypothesis it? first? Okay. Is because of the threshold, and of, that's just the the eye, the the, the yeah. test of the eye. The the highest test in in evidence collection and everything we do is going to be: Are we at a homicide case? Don't forget, forensics is science applied to law. <laughs> so now we're talking about evidence collection preservation, the the theories behind it, the way you test the evidence are all peer-reviewed types of uh, things that we want to be able to stand up in court. Mm-hmm. So you go in with a hypothesis. Right. And what's the step that you take beyond that? The next thing you start to process the scene, gather the data, and then you compare the data to the hypothesis. If homicide quickly falls away, then we know we have to run it through the other high hypotheses like accidental, suicidal, or natural. Mm-hmm. So the eight cases, and are there just eight, or I want to make sure that we're, <clears throat> we're talking eight episodes. Is it eight, just eight cases or more than eight? No, it's eight episodes, and they're eight cases. Okay, all right. So they're full study, studies, and it also, the unique thing here is it really shows a lot of teamwork, the coordination between police and uh, the coroner's office, and... Uh, also, the variety of sciences in forensic science, because um, I, for 10 years, I've taught down at Harrisburg University, and I teach forensic science down there. I help develop the program, and it's been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done, uh, but the truth of the matter is that forensic science is first science, and then it's applied to law, so I encourage people that are interested in forensic science, as they watch these shows, realize, <laughs> and this is probably more realistic than many. Oh, but I'm sure. As, as you look at it, realize uh, that you want to enter into a program, especially with uh, student loan debt the way it is, yeah. and moms and dads trying to help. What you have to do is you have to first take science, whether it's... Uh, Organic sciences or uh, non-organic or computer science, any of these, it's first the science, then you minor in the forensics. And that's the way we established the program at Harrisburg University, uh, that 
science is a minor to either your biological sciences or your inorganic sciences. You and I have talked about this before, but with the popularity of the CSI programs, <laughs> I imagine, and programs, I mean TV shows, that uh, there were a lot of students getting out of high school who saw those shows and said, oh, that's what I want to do. That's really exciting. It's on the, the cutting edge. I'll be a star. I'll be like Quincy. If yeah. I'm going back a few years now with Quincy. <clears throat> but uh, that, you know, I'll be that uh, forensic scientist, that medical examiner, that coroner who s helps solve all these cases. Do they get a wake-up call when they come into class? Uh, yes. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about it. Because now we're talking sciences first, and sometimes that's painful because we're talking inferential statistics, calculus. Numbers. They have to <laughs> actually know some math. Yeah, and uh, it's tough. I remember the first time I took inferential statistics uh, was late in life. I looked at my wife, and I said, I can't even read the first chapter. <laughs> the first thing I did was get a tutor. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a challenge that way, but I, I can tell you Yesterday, uh, we did four autopsies over the forensic lab. When I left there, I had to take some time to calm down. Because to me, the ability to look inside a human body and to see what is happening and to look at the profundity of that machine in front of us we call a body is so interesting to me that even after 25 years I walk out of there and say wow that was interesting one of them was an internal bleed to the brain it was thought to be maybe uh, uh, traumatic but it ended up not being traumatic and it was so exciting seeing this perfect internal bleed to the brain in in a certain portion of the brain and it was almost textbook you could take the photos that we used to document what had really happened that day to this gentleman and you you could put that in, in any medical journal and they would say oh boy that's a great example of that type of uh, of bleed in the brain and things like that we started at 5.30, we ended up at about 9, 10 o'clock that day, and I was still pumping. <laughs> so uh, to me, what I do is a privilege. It's a privilege. And uh, I've, I've never forgotten that. I, I love serving as coroner. Uh, but more than that, I want to share, even within this show, um, the role of medical legal death investigators. I have a great team. For, just curious, four autopsies in a day, is that average, above average, below? We'll end up doing, uh, out of our forensic lab here, um, probably about 200 autopsies. In a year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so four in a day does sound <clears throat> a lot. Sometimes six, seven. Really? And then days yeah. go by with none. Yeah, we can we can actually uh, go by a day or two and not have any. We schedule twice a, a week on the autopsies. And, of course, there's all this compilation of reading past medical records. And Yeah, when's it decided to do an autopsy? Uh, well, we decide. We triage. We triage about 1,200 cases. We, uh, uh, 
we do about 200 autopsies, but we fully investigate about 800 cases. Out of the 1,200, we'll investigate maybe 800, 700 cases, and then we do about 200 autopsies. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll be, uh, we also do Cumberland County's autopsies. I have a, the privilege of working with tremendous uh, forensic pathologist, board-certified forensic pathologist. I consider him probably one of the uh, best in the United States, Dr. Wayne Ross. And uh, <clears throat> if if you looked up under the dictionary, geek, his picture would be there. <laughs> and you say that in the most affectionate way, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> he's brilliant. The, the show is The Coroner, I Speak for the Dead, and it, it, it premieres on Investigation Discovery on uh, Monday, July 18th. What time? It's at 10 o'clock, right? It's 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, yeah. okay. All right, let's talk about the show a little bit. Eight cases. All homicides? They're all homicides, yes. Okay. T tell us about some of them. One is a girl, the first episode is about a girl that's trying to change her life. And uh, I can see that, again, the dead speak. And they speak by the environment they live in, the books they read. There's so many other things. You look at all those things. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's called building a victimology. You can't just say, oh, here is a deceased young lady on the floor. You have, and you can explain what the wounds are and everything else, but then crime scene reconstruction is saying, why is that evidence there? Why is she on the floor? Why are those wounds patterns the way they are? That's called evidence reconstruction. It's also called behavioral evidence analysis. In that process, the first thing you do is try to understand and build an understanding of the victim and why they're there in that circumstance that day. And <clears throat> once you build that victimology, that very often points you to the suspect. What happened to her? I mean, I don't want you to give away too much because we want people to watch the show, but... Right, so do I. <laughs> I want eight more episodes. <laughs> um, the, um, the, the young lady was in a conflict, and I'm not going to give it away, but she was both beaten and shot, and that's not pretty. Uh, it is a tragic thing, but I've often seen uh, women that try to get out of uh, maybe bad relationships or bad environments, and at the height of their just trying to make that turn, violence occurs. So from that theme, it's, it's an important story to tell. Is that what happened in this case? She was uh, trying I, to yes. change her life? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, she was actually, yes. She was really trying to change. One of the cases that I know is, is part of the series, and the name just came into the news here in the last two weeks, Joey Miller. Yeah. A serial killer. Correct. Here in uh, central Pennsylvania. And <clears throat> uh, again, his name just came up, uh, another victim that uh, he finally copped to uh, just a week or so ago. Talk about Joey Miller. Well... The cases that never go out of your mind, if you're in police work, a medical legal investigation, are the ones you can't solve. And the people that worked on the Joey Miller case, me being one of them, knew there were more women involved. Provide a little background. How many victims did he have Joe, first? Uh, Joey had seven victims that we know, five of them dead, two of them survived. 
but we think there's more. Um, and that's that's just my own extrapolation. But we never gave up. And here, I think it was 12, how many years later, we finally came up with, uh, because of advancements in DNA, and I had I had the bones. I still had the bones of this young lady. And uh, we found, uh, through the DNA, a possible hit, and then we got that information. We built the victimology of this young lady uh, who had this DNA, and sure enough, it interacted with Joey. And we started to put the pieces together. So after all those years, uh, we were able to tell her story, too, and give closure to the family because they didn't even know whether she was alive or dead. Now, that, as I said, only occurred within the past week or so. Is that going to be part of the show? Um, <clears throat> no, because the Joey Miller episode, which is in there, uh, was already filmed. Right. That's what I figured. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it goes to show you that no matter who the person is, my experience with the police is they never give up. Uh, a homicide case is never closed. And believe me, to the guys that are investing, it's never, it's never closed in their mind. And they're always looking. Many of these cases get solved five, six, seven years, 13, 14 years down the road. And it's because we always go back and look. What do we have new now in science that can give us a better story? DNA is what everyone points to as the, wow, it's a big one as the magic bullet. But what has changed in the past ten or, or twenty years? You've been doing this for over twenty five years. What advances have we made in science? When, when we originally worked with blood pattern analysis as one of my specialties, mm -hmm. but, um, when we were look at blood patterns and blood scenes and collected. When I first started in 1990, the normal practice was, I wonder what blood group he's in, you know, O. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were doing fingerprints and blood types then. Yeah. yeah. Fingerprints and blood types. And then we graduated to what they call nucleic DNA. Well, each cell has a nucleus, and they would take the DNA in that nucleus, and we'd process it. And that was much more accurate than blood typing. Much, much, much more accurate, very accurate. But you had to collect almost a nickel or a quarter's worth of blood to be able to do the process. As the processes refined and became more sensitive when we started to understand the structure of DNA, we thought, wait a minute. Each cell has all these engines that they, they produce all the energy, convert things to energy, and that's called the mitochondria. What if we studied the mitochondria? Well, the mitochondria only give you the maternal part of the DNA, but it's sure enough statistically to say that's the guy or that's the person, you know. So nowadays, um, we can get DNA from very sensitive things. Don't need that nickels. No. <laughs> All you need to do is throw down your cigarette butt. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's going to get better. And we also, there's new science now working on our bacterial colonies profiles within each body because they're never the same. Plus, there's other things for identification like the uh, your frontal sinuses. Yours are totally unique. Even if you had a twin brother, they'd be totally unique. 
So it's just like a fingerprint. Hmm. And those are in that forehead bone. So and again, I, I always have to refer back to the television shows <clears throat> where they get DNA like instantaneously. <laughs> uh, yeah. how, when do you go for DNA evidence, look for DNA evidence? How much does it cost? And I'm, I'm not looking for a dollar figure. Yeah. And how long does it take? Uh, the DNA analysis, we have a pretty good turnout in comparison to many places. Uh, we actually use a place called Medi a Medical uh, Legal Service. No. Medical Legal Services, yeah, and NMS, National Medical Services, I think it is. And it's down in Westchester. It's a world-renowned toxicology lab. I'm very happy with it. And we can stat some cases, but it's going to be two weeks, three weeks for the toxicology. The DNA will many times take longer unless we stat it. And uh, it is costly. DNA is costly. There's no doubt about that. Uh, forensic autopsies are costly. It's one of the most costly things that we do. But then you have radiology. You have, we've had cases, especially in child death, where we're looking at uh, the child's ability to absorb protein and those types of things to define whether the child was starved or had a physical condition because it's a profound thing for, for me to write down on a death certificate. My opinion is, after looking at all the evidence and Dr. Ross's conclusions and everybody's conclusions, this is a homicide. You know, a question I'm sure you ask a lot is how do you keep your emotions in check? And especially when you're de dealing with uh, children who, who have passed. It's one of the hardest things. And it's funny, some will grab you. you. You're doing everything that you can. And it may it may be a month after you close the case where you no longer have to look at it from an investigative standpoint, but you just it catches up to you emotionally what was done to that child. And that has happened to me. The same thing happened. I, I, I did some uh, uh, work with uh, peer work and some processing down at Ground Zero. I still get grumpy, <laughs> you know, uh, every time the anniversary comes around because it, it was mind mapped. Every time you went down there, you were stunned at what you saw from the day before. And it, it didn't didn't make any difference. You didn't get a, accommodated by what you saw. Mm. Is there any one case in particular that has stuck with you more than others? There was one child case which uh, uh, which stuck with me and I can't talk about the details of it but it, it still even to this day um, bothers me greatly but um, there are many times there are many times I'll I'll think of a case way beyond when I was working it because I can't you don't have the time for emotion there you know that it it is not part of the lexicon because you have to function where where everybody else can fall apart you have to function and uh, uh, I've also had, I've had deputies that have left because of the emotional uh, impact of what they do. Mm. We only have a couple minutes left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. One more case uh, out of the eight that, sure. uh, that, that you can kind of give us a little preview. Well, actually one of them was a, another serial killer and that was uh, in West Hanover Township, uh, 
a woman was attacked in her own backyard. Remember that case. And that shows the capriciousness of death. You're not in a place where you think any of this would happen. It's yeah, because we hear often that 90% of the case of homicide cases, the victim knows the person who has committed the crime. Well, that's the problem with serial killers. There's no association. So that's why they're so hard to solve. Mm. But in the, the, talk a little bit more about that case. I, as I said, I, that, it's, it's well, recent, it, which within the last four years. Yeah. So a lot of people are still very it familiar ended with up, it. It ended up... Uh, being a truck driver that uh, w- was in this area, who's in the York area, and has slashed a woman's throat, but uh, she did not. She did not pass away. <clears throat> now, there's two things in logic that are used in investigation. The first and re- most ready reasoning in in investigation is called inductive reasoning. So you take all the data that you know about crime. And you use that to say, okay, where should we go first in this investigation? And the police did what inductive or statistics tell you what to do. Most people know their killer. They're related to them. They're they're married to them. They know them in one way or another. So that's where they went. So the first the first interviews were with the, the husband and the son. And the husband was a suspect there, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. And I would say more of a person of interest because, again, they're working off of inductive data. Now, the interesting thing about inductive data is it is statistical data. So it's never the truth. It's only a probability that there's a higher... I'll give you an example. Most serial killers are white males. Does that mean all serial killers are white males? No, it means most. In other words, if you take the normal bell curve... You're going to find most of these serial killers to be white males. But there's always these outliers in one way or another. This is, if you remember the D.C. shooters, and what was that, 11 or 12 people shot? I mean, it was was a phenomenal amount, everybody. And I remember uh, they had one individual uh, testify, and he said, well, this is is probably a... uh, white guy, you know, living in his mother's basement, but has a job and is from the D.C. area. That was Every, the profile. Yeah. Everything was wrong. Right, right. Everything was wrong. And he, what he failed to say is in inductive data, there's a higher probability this is who it is. It ended up to be a uh, uh, an older black male and a, and a young, very influenced young black male from North Carolina that came up and shot people in D.C. Had no relationship. Total outlier to what the normal data would tell you. Well, I, I'm looking forward to the show. It is uh, called It is called uh, The Coroner, I Speak for the Dead. Graham Hetrick has uh, featured eight of his cases. Uh, it uh, premieres on uh, Investigation Discovery July 18th. That's Monday at 10 p.m. Uh, I want to thank you very much for uh, being with yeah, us. So, one so interesting. I do a blog after each episode. Oh, okay. So, because... To me, the real story here is the dialogue. Let's let's not let any life go by, and especially these five policemen. Let's not let it go by by learning something. 
Okay, thanks for having me. And uh, this is not a very pleasant day on Smart Talk. After the tragedy of last night, we've been talking with the coroner, uh, Hetrick, here for a few minutes. We're going to talk about an anniversary about uh, the deaths caused by sharks on the Jersey Shore 100 years ago. That's coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A hundred years ago this week, in July 1916, five shark attacks occurred off the coast of and within the waterways of New Jersey, eventually ending up in a creek and resulting in four fatalities. The attacks wildly changed previous notions that sharks wouldn't intentionally attack humans in northern, more temperate waters, leading to a shift in public opinion about sharks and acting as future inspiration for Jaws. This year, three New Jersey communities are commemorating the events of a century ago with various events highlighting the history and communities themselves. With me today to talk about the specifics of what have been referred to as the 12 Days of Terror are Deb Whitford, who is the uh, Deb Whitford, who is the president and founder of the Museum of New Jersey Maritime History. Ms. Whitford, welcome to the program. Hello, are you there? There we go. Are yes, th- I'm here. Okay, Deb good. Whitfred. I'm sorry. We we kind of changed guests, didn't we? We're, uh, yes, we did. Our executive director um, is at a dentist appointment, so you're stuck with me, the founder and the president. Of I the I don't know if I would Maritime say. Museum. You know, I, I I think between going to the dentist and <laughs> taking my chances with a shark, I don't know. I'm joking, of course. Let's go back to. Let's, let's go back to uh, July 1916. Uh, yes. This surprises a lot of people because, first of all. It occurred uh, within a short period of time, within a, a short amount of space. But describe what happened in July sixteen, uh, July of nineteen sixteen. Well, uh, July first of nineteen sixteen, a man named Charles Van Sant wanted to take a dip in the Atlantic Ocean between Center Street and Angleside Avenue, right in front of the bathhouses for the Angleside Hotel in Beach Haven. And in Beach Haven, yes, just two blocks from the Maritime Museum, and all of a sudden people on the beach heard these gut-wrenching screams and saw the water turn uh, red and realized that the man had been attacked by something. Um, unfortunately, by the time they took his uh, took the, the victim to the shore, he had bled out so profusely that he ended up dying in the lobby of the Angleside Hotel. Is the Angleside still there? The Angleside Hotel, as it existed in 1916, is not. But uh, um, today, Veterans Bicentennial Park is in the area where the Angleside was. But um, 24 year, Charles was just 24 years old from Philadelphia. He was the first of five attacks along the New Jersey coast within a 12-day period. All right. From Beach Haven, let's move up the coast a little bit for the second one. Well, six days after the Beach Haven attack um, in Spring Lake, there was a second attack. And unfortunately, this too resulted in a fatality. Whether or not it was the same shark or not, nobody will will ever know. Um, on July 6, Charles Bruder, he was a 28-year-old Swiss native. He was killed by a shark at Spring Lake. He was an employee of the Essex and Sussex Hotel in Spring Lake. 
So we don't know. That was one of the big questions I'm sure a lot of people have had over the last hundred years, whether it was the same shark or not. And no one will ever know. Um, we recently hosted a shark awareness dinner, and our uh, featured speaker was Dr. Richard Fernicola, author of the book 12 Days of Terror, phenomenally well-written, well-documented book about the 1916 shark attacks. And we also had on hand uh, Marie Levine, president of the Shark Research Institute, and her educational coordinator, Dean Fessler. None of them can agree that it was most definitely a single shark responsible for all five attacks. And originally it was thought, at least with those two attacks, that it was a great white shark. Well, there's actually no such thing as a great white shark. There are white sharks, there are bull sharks, there are many species of sharks, but if you say great white in front of Dean Fessler, the educational coordinator of the Shark Research Institute, he just goes ballistic because they are prehistoric. They are no longer swimming amongst us. There are white sharks and there are many other species of sharks, but they are more inclined in some cases to believe that it may not have been a white shark, but a bull shark, a more aggressive uh, shark responsible for at least some of these five attacks. All right. Well, then let's go. And this may have been the most surprising, at least location of all. And and the reason is that this was not on the coast of New Jersey. Right. Talk about that. You're talking about the third series of attacks. Yes. 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 Okay. Well, 12 days from the Beach Haven attack, Lester Stilwell, who was only 12 years old, uh, he was mauled and killed in Matawan Creek. Yes. Matawan Creek, uh, several miles from the Atlantic Ocean. Shortly thereafter, Stanley Fisher, who was also 20, uh, or he was 24 years old, uh, he too was attacked in the same vicinity uh, while he was searching for Stillwell's body. That same day, uh, a 12-year-old boy named Joseph Dunn was also attacked in the same creek, but he survived to tell the story. Now, how far is the creek from the ocean? Well, it depends on how you're looking at it. It's a, it's a winding, meandering creek, so it's 11 or 12 miles of meandering creek. But in reality, it's it's only a short distance um, from the Atlantic coast. It just meanders inward for 11 or 12 miles. Many people have said that it couldn't be a white shark because white sharks are not uh, often or or they're not indigenous to fresh or brackish waters. But Matawan Creek, although it winds for many miles inward, it's not that far from the Atlantic Ocean. So there's a very real possibility that it could have been a white shark, but but nobody knows for sure. Uh, a, a white shark was, in fact, captured at some point and said to have contained human remains. But if you speak to Dr. Fernicola about this, we're not so sure that that was, in fact, the case. And um, they may not have been human remains. So, again, 100 miles later, I mean, 100 years later, no one will ever really know. Well, let's go back uh, 100 years. Uh, I, when you talk about that uh, white shark that was, uh, that was caught, uh, there was a famous picture on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. 
of uh, of that shark and a lot of speculation that this was the shark that had killed uh, the, the, the four people. Um, but this made international news at the time, and it really surprises a lot of people today, but at the time, the thought was that sharks were lazy, that they really didn't have a whole lot of energy, and that they were no danger to human beings. Well, at the time, that was uh, thought nationwide, worldwide, that sharks were not, in fact, man-eaters. But, you know, who knows whether it was a case of mistaken identity. Uh, at the time of the attack of, of Van Sant, um, there was a dog swimming in the water and frolicking about with other people, and, and perhaps the shark was more interested in the dog, and Charles Van Sant just got in the way and became a uh, preferred victim at that that moment, but um, remember, and as Fernicola pointed out, and Dean Fessler pointed out at our shark awareness dinner, a hundred years have elapsed since the 1916 shark attacks, and while it was a horrific series of events that resulted in the deaths of four people, since then there have been no shark fatalities along the New Jersey coast. It is true that you stand such a better chance of being struck by lightning. There are so many more dangerous things that you're likely to die of than a shark attack. And um, the fact that there have been no other fatalities along New Jersey's 127 miles of coastline speaks volumes about the anomaly of the 1916 attacks. And as I mentioned in the introduction, there are commemorations going on. You talked about your shark awareness dinner, but uh, there are several commemorations going on this week, correct? That, absolutely, yes. Matawan Creek, of course, today is the 8th. I'm sure Matawan Creek, since their three attacks occurred on the 12th, I understand that they have a series of um, you know, tours of the area where Stillwell, Lester Stillwell and Fisher and, and the other young man were... Uh, attacked. And um, yes, it is a commemorative event. Our September fundraiser is, the theme of our fundraiser that draws about 500 people is in fact the 1916 shark attack. And we have hired a company that uh, has mechanical sharks. You know what a mechanical bull is, right? Oh yeah. Well, this is a mechanical white shark that our attendees at this fundraising event will be riding. <laughs> wow. Yes. So it, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> it, it, it sounds that way. Well, uh, you know, I think that uh, you know, a lot of people will look back and say, you know, what a tragedy, but uh, it is history and uh, something that, as you mentioned, has not occurred along the Jersey coast in a hundred right. years since then. But uh, I would encourage our listeners, if uh, you, if you're Fascinated by uh, what you've heard this morning, go online and read about the 1916 New Jersey uh, shark attacks. And uh, it will, a lot of it, as we said, the impetus for Jaws and uh, Shark Week It's a few weeks ago. But uh, it's Deb Whitcraft, right? That's correct. All Deb right. Whitcraft of the New Jersey Maritime Museum. And, she is and we the... do have a very large exhibit and voluminous documentation about the 1916 shark attacks, and we're open all year if anyone wants to come and do some research. In Beach Haven, right? Yes, Rock Road in Beach Haven. Deb, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much for inviting us. Coming up on Monday, a special Smart Talk on the events of this week.